This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. Broadcasting to you from Santa Rosa, California, by way of the IC Robots Radio Network, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, prepare to witness the strength of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. Folks, it is I, Mr. Sensational, Gino Vega, back with Season 2 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast right here on the IC Robots Radio Network. So yeah, this is the eighth episode overall of the MSGV Podcast, not counting the two summer special episodes I did over the course of last summer, but I'm kind of thinking of this as a start of a new season here for the show. We were sort of a late season replacement or addition last spring or whenever it was we started. So I'm looking at this fall as kind of a, a, a new beginning, um, first full season of the show. Things are getting dialed in. We're ready to go. Um, so without much more verbal meandering or unnecessary explanations, let's just get going on with this show. Episode 8, Season 2, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast. And we're going to start this fall season off appropriately enough talking about television. Um, thinking it might be a couple episode arc here. Um But we're going to start off today talking about the institution that was Saturday Morning Cartoons and some of my memories around that institution and some of the ways in which that medium has inspired me in the years since and influenced me. But before we get onto that, I just want to report in really briefly about what's been going on here in uh, the sensational household. Um going to kind of give you a report on uh, what was it that back in school you used to have to do like what I did in my summer vacation. So I think I'm going to break that down real quick because I've been meaning to sort of tie up some of those loose ends and I haven't had a chance to talk about that here yet. Now my summer vacation this year was mostly dominated by trips down to Southern California. Uh, One trip I took with the family, one trip I took with a friend, and I believe I mentioned both of these on uh, one or two of the summer uh, special episodes I did, but I mostly just referenced that I was either going on these trips or had just gotten back from them. Didn't really talk about what happened, so I'll just take a moment here to break it down. Um, The family trip that we took was down to Los Angeles, and it's kind of funny because, you know, I've lived in California my entire life, albeit Northern California, Um, but I've had relatives that live down in LA, friends that live in LA, uh, various reasons to go down there. But over the years, um, I haven't spent a lot of time just chilling in Los Angeles proper, like kind of in the downtown, checking out the city. Um, I've always been more prone to be in situations where I'm going down there to do a specific thing. I go to that destination and I don't really branch out or explore that much. I've certainly never been down there just as a tourist, kind of taking in the sights. So we wanted to get a little bit of that in on uh, this trip this summer with the family. 
Really, our main reason to go down there was to take the kids, um, Miss Sensational 1, who's 12 right now, and Miss Sensational 2, who's 9, take them on a trip down to um, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal Studios in L.A. Um, They're both big Harry Potter fans, but we wanted to to put that in there, but also squeeze in some, some downtown L.A. time. And so we stayed down there at a place called the Miyako Hotel. And if I remember correctly, I believe the Miyako Hotel is operated by the company that um, sort of started um, the whole Japantown Center in San Francisco, California, if if you've ever been to the Japantown in San Francisco, which is a fun place to hang out. But the Miyako Hotel, I mean, it's just a hotel, but it's kind of, I I believe that that it it has some level of Japanese or Japanese-American ownership. It's kind of Japanese-themed. You know, it's got the gimmick toilets, you know, with the water that shoots up um, when you're sitting on it. Um, You can order room service, and they've got like a traditional Japanese breakfast, which I ordered. I finally got to eat natto for the first time um natto being fermented soybeans and natto you know a a lot of times these kind of um foods that sound strange uh, i end up really being a big uh fan of but natto um yeah i mean it wasn't horrible but it wasn't all that like i wouldn't go out of my way to eat it um but Hey, I finally got to eat it. It's been on my list for a long time. And I eat a lot of Japanese food and a lot of actual, like, uh, you know, um, uh, culturally authentic, as it were, Japanese food. But I just have never gotten around to having a chance to uh, bust out with the natto. But I did. It's pretty bitter. Um, but whatever. Um, so we stayed at the Hotel Miyako. It's right there in kind of the Japantown area in downtown Los Angeles. And the very first thing that happened upon arriving at the hotel, we'd driven down from Santa Rosa. We actually chopped the drive up into two parts. We stopped over in um, Fresno, California, and then drove the rest of the way down the next day. Um, we, we had a detour in Fresno that I'm going to talk about at a later date because we visited a tourist attraction that deserves maybe its own episode entirely. Um, but I don't want to get into it here. We'll talk about it another time. But anyway, first thing that happened upon arriving at the Miyako Hotel, we uh, get out of the car. Our car is being valet parked. We walk into the lobby. And uh, uh, I was with the kids, Miss uh, One and Miss Two, while Ms. Sensational was uh, checking in. And I was kind of hanging with the kids and with our luggage. And I see this dude roll into the lobby. And he's this guy. He's wearing like um, – kind of long um, check pattern uh, shorts, um, sort of tank top muscle tee um, shirt, pretty buffed out dude, shaved head, you know, wearing the sunglasses on the back of his head, if you know that look, Um, they're not over his eyes, they're along the back of his head, and um, real kind of like, for lack of a better term, sort of PCP'd out looking guy, just kind of crazy eyes, real intense, real buff, just like looks like he's so wound up, you know, just like he's a high tension wire and he just comes strutting into the lobby and um, there's kind of these um, uh, elderly Asian women working um, behind the counter and um, (laughs) this kind of, this is part and parcel of this whole story. Um, Being someone that has, um, an Asian side of the family that in, includes, among other people, um, elderly Asian women. Uh, now, it could be th- this could just be peculiar to my sample size, my family, but it seems to be kind of a cultural trait um, for a lot of different Asian groups. Um, 
Asian people, in my experience, they're not really ones for fools causing scenes in public. <laughs> you know, I, the, kind of the, the Asian way, I'm, at least, I mean, for my relatives, the Chinese way, but I, I've kind of seen similar things in other groups. But, 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 but the Asian way is kind of like, you know, you sort of like eyes, eyes ahead, you know, not making a big spectacle when you're out in public going about your business, kind of um, in a workmanlike manner, accomplish what you're trying to accomplish, and no one needs to know anyone else's business. No one needs to see any kind of zany antics. And um, I definitely, a lot of that has been imparted from my family onto me. I am certainly not one for public spectacles, which is kind of funny because I'm I'm like a big performance art guy, you know, I love, love the professional wrestling. I love other kind of theater of the absurd type of things. But when it's within um, a venue where it's supposed to be happening. I, I'm not a big fan of fools causing a scene just kind of at the spur of the moment. I don't even like it. You know, it makes me uncomfortable when people are just like uh, um, playing music in public. Like, I don't mean there's some like concert or some band playing, but just like, you know, the the kind of prototypical busker, you know, playing their accordion or playing their guitar or their violin on the street corner. Some people get into that. And to me, it's just like, no, you, I'm, I'm here to go about my business. You know, I can't be stopped to talk to you. Um, that, that's great. I'll, I'll listen to your music down at the concert hall. I don't want to hear it on the street corner. So just a peculiarity of mine. And I do feel that it, it was influenced by my mom's Chinese side of the family. Um, Chinese people in public, um, at least the ones that I am familiar with, um, particularly the women, um, because my my both my mother and my grandmother are big into this, um, they tend towards what um, is referred to in the wrestling business as no selling. No selling is in wrestling. I, I'm sure I've talked about this on the show before, but if someone one wrestler does a move to another wrestler, like slaps him across the chest or you know suplexes him or something, and the person on the receiving end of that offensive move just acts like nothing happened, that's no selling. And um, my mom, my grandma. When weird scenes are happening in public or someone's like acting all crazy or saying something weird to them, they will just no sell you. They will act like it's not happening. And um, that tends to be that's a trait I've witnessed in in um, other Asian people, not just my relatives. So hopefully I'm not making some horribly gross uh, racial or cultural generalization, but it's what I've experienced and what's what I feel in my own core. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so these older Chinese, older Japanese ladies in this case, well, I don't even know if they're Japanese, older Asian ladies working behind the desk at the Miyako Hotel and PCP dude just struts in and he's like, goes up to one of them and he's like, um, so I know you know who I am. And for a second I'm thinking, is this guy some jackass, like, you know, D-level celebrity? You know, because we are in downtown Los Angeles. But, um, uh, you know, so I know you know who I am. And they're just kind of like looking right through him, just straight no-selling. And he's like, you know, and that's fine. You're going to act like you don't know me. But why, what I want to know is what you did with all my money. And the dude's just kind of like roiding out at this point. His veins are kind of like jutting out of his uh, throat and forehead. And um, at this point, I think Miss Two is kind of noticing and getting sort of tensed up and getting a little flexy herself, you know, in kind of in a uh, fighter stance. Um, and uh, so I'm kind of walking towards the kids because I was like, I kind of want to usher them out of the way if this guy gets all crazy. Because he wasn't doing anything that weird, but it was just like a, the bad vibes in the room. You know, I was picking up bad energy in the lobby. But the hotel employees just continued to no-sell him, and he sort of got a little ranty with them and then eventually just spun around on his heel and left looking at us with the eyes in the back of his head through his sunglasses on the back of his head. 
his bald chrome dome head. Um, so we're, we're just kind of like, Oh, that was weird. Um, and, uh, collected our stuff, went up to our room and we're all getting settled into our hotel room. It's a nice room, several stories up, great view of, uh, you know, the street down below and kind of stretching out into other parts of downtown Los Angeles. And all of a sudden, um, I hear a bunch of cop cars, um, whoop, you know, they're all coming up to the, uh, um, sidewalk on the uh, opposite side of the street um, that our hotel was on. And so at first it's like two or three cop cars and then another one rolls up and another one. And all of a sudden the the streets just lined with cop cars. And um, I'm looking and I'm seeing some uh, cops get out of their car and I'm seeing various uh, Asian individuals coming out of businesses on that side of the street and kind of like pointing down to this other business at the end of the street and kind of gesticulating and uh, officiously directing the police. And as I'm watching this, Miss One and Miss Two, um, who again are 12 and 9, both come up to me and they're like, I bet those guys are looking for that for that stepper from the lobby, that guy who stepped. Uh, it's a term that the the kids will use for um, folks who uh, are kind of getting in people's face in public. And so um, I was like, maybe. But the, as I'm watching the scene, I'm thinking, you know, I think you might be right. And I'm picturing um, that this guy left our hotel, went across the street, and was just going from business to business, just raging. And that's not going to fly in um, an area that's populated um, by Asian businesses. They don't, they don't want that. I mean, no no business owner really wants someone <laughs> coming in and roiding out on them. But uh, in, in particular, just in my experience, that's not going to fly um, in an Asian business district. So the kids are looking and they're watching and there's one business at the end of the block. I think it was a restaurant of some sort. And we see a bunch of police go in and then they never come out and time's passing and time's passing. And the girls are just worked up into a frenzy and they're like, he's in there. The stepper is in there. And, um, right now I'm, uh, betraying what a monster I am because rather than turn this into a teachable moment where I could have explained to them that if, if it is indeed that gentleman, you know, here's an individual that's having a hard time, having some sort of mental or, or drug-related crisis, um, let's have some compassion, but instead they're just uh, uh, finding this pure reality TV entertainment for them um, unfolding before their own eyes and I do nothing to really step in. I just kind of <laughs> step, as it were. I kind of... Um, and just by their side, maybe it is the stepper. Hmm, let, let's, let's see how this unfolds. And sure enough, after about 15 minutes, um, a lot of the cop cars start to disperse, and eventually a group of officers come out with our friend the stepper in tow. And so the kids were right. It was indeed the stepper. Um, that was their introduction into downtown Los Angeles, um, watching this poor individual um, lose his crap and then pay a legal price as he was carted away by police so welcome to the jungle baby you're gonna die um so anyway yes poor parenting on my part not um imparting the proper um uh communication of compassion and empathy um they they get that quite a bit this was kind of a one-off and i let them um kind of soak in the experience and uh relate to it in an unfiltered sort of way Um, there'll be plenty of time for them to be carrying individuals down the road, um, unless they take after their father, in which case they'll just be kind of a weird lurky guy, um, watching steppers get arrested and looking the other way and not wanting to get involved. Um, just trying to stay true to his Asian heritage. So 
yeah, we uh, stayed at the hotel for a couple days, went to Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Uh, it was all right. Not a big Harry Potter guy myself, um, but the kids seemed to enjoy it. That ride, the main Harry Potter ride, is pretty freaking terrifying because it's kind of a hybrid of um, one of those rides where you're um, kind of virtual reality watching things on a screen, you know, sort of the, the whole Star Tours type model. But then you're also in a um, uh, like a car, not a not a roller coaster car, but like a chair. And at certain points, it's like tipping upside down and jerking around. And I thought my shoes were going to fall off, and I thought my phone and my wallet were going to fall out of my pocket. But I survived, and um, that trip continued to go off mostly without a hitch. Um, one of the real highlights of that visit was um, a spot where we had dinner a couple times. Um, it was a place, I believe it was called uh, Kula Revolving Sushi Bar. Uh, it was right there around the corner from our hotel. Um, looks like it's part of a, a small chain. Um, it's a couple different locations in a couple different states. But um, the thing is, for me, when it comes to food, um, I haven't really talked about this on the show. I, I guess when it comes to food, I'd have to say I'm what you'd call a contextualist. Um, I'm not a total food snob guy, but I'm also not against, um, fancy pants eating, um, in the right context, I guess you would say. Um, it it really bugs me when people, um, you know, are at some greasy spoon diner and want to, uh, rate it, um, as they would some, you know, Michelin star restaurant. And um, vice versa, I don't like it when someone can't appreciate fine dining um, because they're just uh, categorically opposed to it for some reason. I, in the to, to everything, it's context, I guess. You know, I, I, I like myself some McDonald's and I like myself some uh, fancy pants cuisine as well. It just depends on the circumstance and, um, you know, what else is going on around me. So now I bring this up because when it comes to sushi, generally speaking, I'm not into the idea of saving money on sushi or going to like an all you can eat sushi place because it really is sushi. I mean, not all Japanese food, but sushi specifically is intended to be somewhat of a quote unquote elevated cuisine. It's like it, it requires a great deal of skill to, to uh, execute properly. It requires high quality ingredients. So generally speaking, I'm somewhat leery of like sushi boat places or automated sushi joints because um, if I'm going to have like some some uh, cheaper or lower end Japanese food, I'd rather have, you know, um, a meal like a good yakitori place or, you know, something more like dinery type Japanese food. It, is, it doesn't make sense. Uh, you, you wouldn't go to like a discount high-end French cuisine restaurant, you know? But anyway, so um, Ms. Sensational had been looking for a place for us to eat, and she found this place, and I was kind of annoying about it at first, because like, dude, I don't want to go to, like, a sushi boat place. Those places suck. She's like, no, 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 believe me. I researched this. It's supposed to be good. Let's just go. So I was annoying about it, but then we went, and it turns out it was actually... Um, the, the food was decent. It was good. Um, but the environment was what it was all about. It wasn't a sushi boat place. It was a, like a sushi conveyor belt place. And it wasn't really sushi per se. They had all kinds of stuff. Um, so it kind of um, worked more into the sort of fast food middling cuisine. They weren't really trying to pass off, um, you know, fine dining um, in, in a, a kind of cheap or weird corner cutting way. The, the food made sense. The context was right. But the thing that was great is like you just um, – sat at this little table, ordered your food on a computer screen. It would come shooting down the conveyor belt for you. Um, 
the, you paid by the plate. And so when you were done eating, you uh, deposited your plate into this receptacle and it would uh, calculate how many plates you'd used and that, that's how you got charged. But the gimmick that they had that was really fun is after X amount of plates, um, the screen that you used to order the food would start showing this kind of cheesy anime thing where the, the mascot for the restaurant was kind of fighting a Godzilla-type creature and um, this character needed, um, you know, just five more plates and we can save Tokyo. So, you know, just kind of, kind of gave you that incentive to uh, order a few more. And so um, eventually, uh, we uh, both times we went there, we hit the plate maximum where we were able to save Tokyo and then a little kind of uh, gumball machine ball comes rolling down uh, a little uh, ramp and it's got like stickers in it or whatever. So uh, that, that was fun. That was cool. Um, just wanted to get that out there about contextual dining and where I'm coming from. But yeah, we had a, a good time dining at Kula Revolving Sushi Bar. And so the other part of my summer vacation that I don't want to get too uh, crazily into, but I would be remiss not to just bring up, is the other main trip I took this summer, right on the heels of that trip that I just talked about. I, I basically came home, was home for a day, then turned right back around and went back down to L.A. or Long Beach, um, <clears throat> as it were. My buddy Jerry and I went down to Long Beach, California to see the first ever New Japan Pro Wrestling shows um, here in the United States. Um, New Japan stars have obviously performed in the States before, but these were the first full-on New Japan shows put on by New Japan. Uh, you know, they brought in the rings from Japan. They even brought in Japanese tables um, because, uh, you know, wrestling, sometimes uh, fools will get slammed through a table, and the tables that they use in Japan are significantly different than the ones here in the States, so that was kind of fan service because it's sort of a joke about the Japanese tables. They don't break as easy as the... Uh, American ones, and it's uh, yeah, kind of a bad scene when fools are slammed onto a uh, small but sturdy Japanese table. So the Japanese tables were in effect, uh, the, the legit ring, the legit like screen graphics. It was all a straight-up New Japan show just here in the States instead of in uh, Japan. So uh, we were pretty stoked to be on hand for this historic event because, as you know, I'm a big professional wrestling fan and, in particular, uh, a fan of Japanese wrestling and, in particular, a fan of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, so we had a great time, got to see the stars. Um, we got to meet a, a bunch of people down there. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know, we both participate in various online wrestling fan forums, and it was pretty cool because we rolled into Long Beach, checked into our uh, – little shady motel that we stayed at and then kind of walked down to the convention center area where the shows were going to be, um, walked into kind of a fake Irish pub. And the first thing that happened when we walked in the doors, we got waved to by a table full of wrestling fans and just sat down and became fast friends with these guys for about 45 minutes, uh, who we'd never met before in our lives, but we all kind of knew each other from online and it was a lot of fun. The shows were great. Um, the one little highlight I want to bring up um, before we move on is that um, it was two shows, two nights. Um, the first night, you know, we were there, watched the first couple matches, and I had to go use the bathroom. Um, so in order to get to the bathroom, you had to walk past this area that was basically a curtain, and behind the curtain was the, the backstage area where the performers were. And as I'm walking by, I see this wrestler, Bad Luck Fale, who's um, kind of big Islander guy from New Zealand who wrestles for New Japan. And um, he was talking to this other gentleman, and I suddenly realized the guy he was talking to was none other than the wrestler known as both Haku and Meng. He was Haku in um, WWF. He was Meng in WCW. 
Uh, guy's a legend in professional wrestling, one of my favorite wrestlers, um, known for being a legit tough guy, like all the other wrestlers were supposedly afraid of him. Um, you know, uh, Andre the Giant didn't want to fight him. Um, you know, like legit fight, not... Uh, not scripted pro wrestling match. So I see, I see Haku, I see Meng and, uh, you know, I don't want to be weird, but I also feel like I just got to like pay my respects and I'm about to just really briefly just, you know, give him a tip of the cap when this just wasted dude rolls up and cuts in front of me and walks up to him and he's like, Meng, Meng, Meng. And Meng is just kind of like, hmm, <laughs> huh. And uh, the guy's like, can I hug you? And before Meng can answer, just just wraps his arms around Meng and is just sobbing. And um, I'm kind of looking at them and Meng looks at me and he's like, oh, God, there's like another one, too, waiting. You know, I, I just see the terror in his eyes that I'm also queued up. And uh, he eventually um, detangles himself from the hugger and the hugger uh, goes on his way, just like, I met Meng. And I see Meng is just trying to turn around and just jet back behind the curtain. But before he can, I just kind of inserted myself and I was just like, sir, thank you for the memories. And he gave me the, the fist to the heart and the point, And then we both went our separate ways. So I was, I was pretty happy about that. I, that was fun. But, um, moving right along, that was my summer. I mean, lots of other stuff happened, but those were sort of the highlights, the cliff notes version. Now let's move on to, um, what we're going to talk about for the rest of this show. We're going to start talking about television, my history with television as a child. And we're going to start more or less with Saturday morning cartoons. When we return right here on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Tune in to the Toys R Us report for your weekly dose of pop culture talk that's out of this world. Movies, TV, toys, comics and more every Wednesday on the IC Robots radio network at icrobots.com. What are you waiting for? It's time to get down or come up. You are listening to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Saturday mornings, turn on the fun, excitement, and adventures of all your favorite pals when Pac-Man drops in. Yahoo! Hi, PJ! But that's not all. Super Pac is here, followed by Ruben. Ruby, great to play! With his mystical magic, Ruby the Amazing Cube. Then it's Menudo. And it's the Littles jumping into big adventures. Better hold on to me, Lucy. Saturday Sparkle. <laughs> and welcome back to the season premiere of season two of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network, episode eight where we are going to be talking about some television memories by way of the institution that once was Saturday Morning Cartoons. Now, I'm sure most listeners to the show outside of maybe Lee Stumbaugh will remember Saturday Morning Cartoons well. It was that uh, time period um, in the 1970s, 1980s, um, probably ended sometime during the 1990s. I'll look that up in a minute. But um, when... Every Saturday morning, the major television networks would show blocks of children's programming, um, primarily animated television shows, cartoons. And um, I was a huge aficionado of 
the Saturday morning cartoon schedule growing up. But before Saturday morning cartoons came into the mix for me, my initial forays into television watching were primarily um, PBS programming uh, during the week. Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, Electric Company. Those are my earliest memories of being mesmerized by television. Um, I've talked on the show before about how my parents were fairly stingy on the media front, so I wasn't given free reign to watch TV whenever I wanted, but my parents themselves enjoyed Sesame Street during its golden age um, in the late 70s, early 80s, so they were cool with me watching that um, because I think they would kind of watch it themselves along with me, and um, I just remember being sucked into that world. I have these these uh, early kind of chromatic filter memories of just uh, kicking it in front of the television set and being drawn into Sesame Street, being drawn into Mr. Rogers' world of make-believe, um, watching Spider-Man on Electric Company, um, begging for more as 321 Contact came on and they made me turn it off because uh, I'd exceeded my quota for the day. But somewhere along the line, um, I started watching Saturday morning cartoons. And I think really what it was, was it was a function of my parents wanting to sleep in on Saturdays and me being a young child, being ready to go at like 6 a.m. So their defenses were down, my parents' defenses were down, and they eventually acquiesced into letting me watch television, as many parents do, as a way of occupying their children, whether they want to admit it or not. But in, in my case, my parents uh, became open to letting me watch Saturday morning cartoons. And my earliest memories with Saturday morning cartoons, I remember, um, I, I don't remember exactly how I discovered them. It was probably just my parents were like, oh, no, leave us alone because I'm like jumping on their bed and trying to get them to wake up. And they're like, you can go watch TV. And um, I don't specifically remember the first cartoon I ever saw. What I do remember, which is kind of funny, is there was a show that would come on super early on Saturday mornings before the cartoons started to air. It was a show called The New Zoo Review. And I hated The New Zoo Review because I wanted to see cartoons. The New Zoo Review was like a live-action kind of puppet-type show. And it's like, no, no, no. I, I already see Sesame Street during the week. Now, I'm, I'm ready for my cartoons. What's this New Zoo Review nonsense? But... Um, News Review came on so early in the morning that it was it, it was like at the, the outer echelons of how early my parents would let me get up and start watching TV. So even though I didn't like the show, I associated it with um, the floodgates opening for the rest of the morning and the cartoons I'd watch. So I remember going into my parents' room, jumping on their bed, laying in their bed, looking at um, their bedside um, alarm clock, which this was so early that it wasn't even um, – a digital clock. It was like one of those deals where like the numbers were on like rolls of paper that would, you know, turn. Um, if that makes any sense, if you know what I'm talking about, but, uh, I'd be sitting there and it would be like six ten, And I think they would let me get up at like six thirty, and I would have the new zoo review theme song, just like crashing in my head and just like be chomping at the bit to get up. And eventually they'd be like, all right, fine, go out there. And I'd just run out there and suffer through the new zoo review until, uh, cartoon programming began. And so before I get into some specific memories and stories related to these cartoons, let me just do a real quick rundown of what Saturday morning cartoons were. Um, it was a little bit more than just 
cartoons that happened to be shown on Saturday mornings. It was an actual concerted institution, um, which I wasn't entirely aware of um, before I started doing a little bit of um, research for this episode. And by research, I mean I looked up Saturday morning cartoons on Wikipedia. So let me just relay a really brief summary of my extensive research to you. Um, So Saturday morning cartoons were generally a block of programming from 8 a.m. to noon. And it appears that um, the practice of networks running children's programming during these time slots goes back as far as the early 1950s. Um, The whole idea of Saturday morning cartoons took hold, though it appears, in around the mid-1960s when, as Wikipedia says, the networks realized they could concentrate kids' viewing on that one morning to appeal to advertisers. And appeal to advertisers they did, because really looking back on it, a lot of my clearest and most vivid and long-lasting memories associated with watching Saturday morning cartoons are the various um, advertisements that I saw interspersed between the shows, kind of not necessarily product placement, because I don't think that they did straight up product placement in a cartoon, but but just positioning a prod, uh, products alongside animated characters that appealed to me. Um, I've got commercials ingrained in my mind from the 1980s to this day that I can call up just like that. And, and not many of them really affect my purchasing to, um, today, but there was power in that advertising and there was a captive market on those Saturday mornings. So this makes complete sense. And as my research goes on to show, um, which I, I pretty much, it, it rings a bell with me thinking back to I, I these eras sound about right. The 1960s saw a boom in superhero cartoon series, and that was stuff like Spider-Man, Aquaman, uh, Space Ghost, the Herculoids, all that good stuff, um, which obviously I wasn't around in the 1960s, but those cartoons were still kicking around out there over the years, um, even when I was a kid. Uh, 1970s, they got big into making animated versions of popular live-action primetime series, and we're talking about Star Trek, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, uh, Mork and Mindy, and this I definitely remember my earliest cartoon memories, that that those kind of like animated versions of live-action shows were definitely dominating the airwaves. Um, Yeah, I mentioned here there was a Zorro cartoon. I totally remember watching Zorro very early on in my Saturday morning cartoon watching. And then the 1980s saw the introduction of the Smurfs. And we're going to talk about the Smurfs. And the Smurfs uh, begat Monchi Cheese, begat Trollkins, begat Snorks. And uh, big fan of the Monchi Cheese. The rest of that stuff can take a short walk off a long pier as far as I'm concerned. But we will address that shortly. Um, And then around the 1990s, when I was kind of aging out of sitting around watching television on a Saturday morning anyway... The institution just kind of disappeared. And um, for years, I just thought that this was a product of market forces and a changing society and uh, cable television. And there just wasn't really a need anymore to have a concentrated block of kids' shows on a Saturday morning on networks. But in fact, there were nefarious players involved in the demise of Saturday morning cartoons. There was a watch group backlash. Now, I just want to preface uh, talking about this backlash first by asserting the fact that while there are plenty of people out there who are up in arms about rules and regulations of any kind, I am not one of those people. I'm a pretty practical person, 
And I feel that while in our culture, in our society, there's kind of an inclination to be um, against all rules. The man can't hold me down, you know, freedom, um, which is fine to a degree. Uh, there, there comes a certain time when um, regulations are there for a reason and they actually um, ensure more freedom for more people than if they weren't there. And I'm talking about like um, the freedom to not have a business open up a slaughterhouse next to your residential home um, or the um, freedom. And I, this is coming for me personally. I absolutely love smoking. If I could smoke without serious health issues, I would be chain smoking 24 seven. I, I don't anymore, but, uh, um, but the, the freedom for the, the, vast majority of people who do not smoke to be able to be in like multifamily housing, for instance, without just like smoke pouring in through all their ventilation. There's often a lot of like, what about the freedom of the smokers, man? But that I don't understand why that inflictive freedom is always where people's mind goes when it first, when, when the term freedom arises, there's usually a larger group of people um, who aren't doing the inflicting. Why shouldn't they be free to not be inflicted upon? So anyway, off my soapbox for a minute, I'm just trying to put out there. I'm not like a knee jerk reactionary anti-regulations. Although in this case, my knee is jerking because this is ridiculous. So basically Starting in the late 1960s, you started to see the rise of parents' lobby groups such as Action for Children's Television. These groups voiced concern about the presentation of commercialism, violence, antisocial attitudes, and stereotypes in Saturday morning cartoons. And so over the decades of lobbying, these groups put pressure on the FCC and other agencies to insist upon both advertising restrictions and an insistence on the inclusion of educational spots um, in this children's programming. And I believe that's why we saw the rise of um, components that were there in the Saturday morning cartoon landscape, like uh, Schoolhouse Rock, One to Grow On. What was that guy? Um, oh, that cat that like lived in an alley and had like a sailor, like, ship captains. I'm Captain OG Readmore. My motto is tried and true. Read a book like me and soon you'll say, oh gee, I'll read more too. And I didn't read a damn thing. I just kept watching cartoons. But anyway, these, these, um, you know, uh, this isn't Saturday morning cartoons, but GI Joe, the knowing it's half the battle. I believe these were all, um, reactions to the efforts of these parent watch groups to learn us young people. And, um, I didn't learn much, but I do remember those segments. But anyway, as the, the lobbying continued, apparently, I guess at a certain point there became, um, an insistence of, uh, networks showing, um, uh, a strict amount of educational programming per week. Um, I think in conjunction, like, Relatively speaking, like if you had X amount of hours of the entertainment cartoons, you had to have X amount of minutes of educational programming. And at a certain point, it just wasn't worth it anymore for the networks to be clustering that kind of programming on Saturday mornings. And it went away, was replaced by live action shows, was replaced by news programs, was replaced by all kinds of other dreary, dreadful boringness. And cartoons kind of scattered to the wind, scattered to cable networks, and we live in the sad world without Saturday morning cartoons that we inhabit today. 
And I know, I, I remember a couple years back on Facebook, I saw someone who had a young child who was now starting to become of television viewing age, lamenting the fact that Saturday morning cartoons don't exist as an institution anymore. And another person chimed in that, big deal, my kids can watch cartoons anytime they want on any number of cable channels or on demand or on YouTube, this, that, or the other. And I agree with that um, in a certain sense. I've said before on this show, I think it's a mistake to... Uh, always say um, methods of media delivery were better when they were more limited in our earlier uh, age as children of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But um, so yeah, well, on demand and Netflix and all that stuff, certainly I wouldn't want to go back to before those uh, methods of delivery. But at the same time, there was something to be said about the magic of Saturday mornings. You know, there's always that nostalgia looking back. And that's what we're going to talk a bit more about here. So yeah, those Saturday mornings would start off for me just with that torture of waiting to be able to get up, writhing around in my parents' bed, thinking about the horrid news review until they finally let me get up. Um, the news review, I'm not even going to bother looking it up because I really don't care, but uh, it was, like I, like I said earlier, live action characters, kind of Barney before Barney was Barney. I remember some green fool, like maybe a frog or something, was one of the main characters. I don't know. It was horrible stuff. Finally, it would be over. And in my early memories, I do recall watching stuff like um, I'd mentioned earlier um, that uh, in the 70s, there was kind of a boom of live action television shows being turned into animated series. And I do remember that. I remember like a Zorro and maybe Tarzan uh, feature hour where there'd be back-to-back episodes of those two characters. But those early memories are just kind of hazy. I, I just remember more um, just the general impression of being kind of out there bathed in the colors and sounds and images of these cartoons and just kind of like feeling a high off of that and feeling like um, just feeling my imagination stimulated, which is funny because that's the what uh, a lot of these parents uh, both then and even now are always up in arms about with screens or various kinds of video media that it's somehow going to stunt their children. But for me, I feel like I'm someone that has a pretty active uh, inner life, active imagination, and I credit most of that to watching cartoons when I was a kid, reading comic books, playing video games, um, you know, Art comes in many different forms, and your imagination can be stimulated by many different uh, mediums, as it were. Um, that's all media is, is a medium of communication. And someone's uh, com- trying to communicate with me right now as you hear that irritating beep because I hadn't uh, closed out my web browser during this recording session. But anyway, um, so, you know, I kind of bumped along my early years watching cartoons. And I remember it really coalescing one year, um, probably when I was about four or five, um, definitely about five. Cause it was in the house where my brother was born. Um, and, uh, yeah, I have this vivid memory of it being, um, evening and I'm sitting on the counter in our kitchen and my dad was making dinner and, um, there was just a feeling of lightness in the house. Everyone seemed kind of excited, but not about anything in particular, just kind of lighthearted and, um, just like a weight had been lifted um, off of everyone's shoulders. And I looked over, and we had another one of those clocks um, in the kitchen there, one of these uh, digital clocks but pre-LED or whatever, where, again, like I said earlier, just paper rolling with the numbers printed on it. 
But uh, looking at that clock and I'm seeing that it's turning into like eight o'clock and I'm thinking normally this is a time where I have to go to bed, but there doesn't seem to be any urgency to going to bed. And I kind of asked my parents what was up and they're like, oh, well, it's Friday. Um, We don't work and you don't have school tomorrow. And all of a sudden, you know, the wheels started turning and this is where I first um, understood you know, the kind of the differentiation between the week and weekdays and weekend and how weekdays, you know, you got all kinds of stuff going on. You probably, you have to go to bed early or if you don't, you're going to pay the price the next day when you have to wake up early. But Fridays lead into this time where it's just a, a different vibe. You know, you can stay up a little bit later, you can sleep in later, or you can wake up super early and watch cartoons. And this is when I started to piece together like, oh, this is the night before that day when I get to see all of these characters and stories that are just like sucking me in and making me want to watch more and more and more, which I guess maybe I am playing into the hands of the parent watch groups because, you know, I I was a mark for watching more and more and more and therefore seeing more and more and more advertisements. So uh, after that happened, Saturday morning cartoons really did start to become more of a defined thing for me that I actively looked forward to and started to really... um, Expect to see certain shows. It wasn't just um, how it had been the previous couple of years where I just watched whatever and it was kind of a uh, hallucinogenic wave of, of whatever happened to be flashing in front of my eyes. I was starting to identify shows, identify shows I liked, and anticipate shows I wanted to see. And that anticipation is really where the magic lay for me with Saturday morning cartoons. It created a feeling in me that I've spent years since trying to recreate unsuccessfully. I've never been able to. Um, and it, it's weird because when I started to think about this episode and I started to think about watching those cartoons, I had this kind of muscle memory. I'm in my parents' living room of their current house, and it's nighttime, and I'm getting ready to sleep on their couch, which is weird because I haven't spent the night in their house in years, much less on the couch there. And all of a sudden, this just wave of just like, good vibes, for lack of a better term, washes over me when I realize, oh, tomorrow, tomorrow. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Um, And I don't know what that memory comes from because it's not – I wasn't watching Saturday morning cartoons in the house they're in currently. And I don't know if this is just something that popped into my mind that my my – that um, you know, my psyche created when I was thinking about this episode, or if it's just an amalgamation of that anticipation, but just there was something so powerful about that feeling. You know, it's funny. I watch uh, football, American football, NFL. Uh, big Raiders fan, and total. To be perfectly honestly honest, you know, some people I know will try to bag on football. You know, it's like oh, 11 minutes of action over the course of a whole season. Well, here's the deal, dude. It's a three-hour block of programming once a week on the weekends for a couple months out of the year. And it's the it's one of the closest things I've been able to um, get to, to replacing that feeling of anticipation, something to wait for, um, something to look forward to in that same way as the cartoons. And it doesn't quite fit the bill, but I mean, that's why, I, that's honestly, that's why I watch football, which is kind of funny now that I, that's occurred to me. But, so, watching these cartoons, you know, it wasn't always easy, man. There were some trials and tribulations. You know, first of all, like I said, my parents would let me watch them, but every now and again, they'd kind of try to backslide and pull a fast one. Like, oh, I don't know. You've been watching an awful lot of these cartoons, and I'd have to kind of wheel and deal, um, uh, make sure I could uh, maintain my my uh, viewing privileges. Um, and then even when things were going well, and I'd, I'd 
have license to go out there and, and watch whatever I wanted to watch. And stuff would happen like these fools would wake up themselves and like my, my dad would be making coffee and he'd be running a coffee grinder. And I swear to God, it felt like that thing went on for like 45 minutes, just making the, the worst noises, rendering the cartoons inaudible. It's funny because I do the same thing now and it takes all of like 10 seconds and my kids flip out as well. So I guess it's just a matter of perspective. And then um, one of the worst things that ever happened when I was just settling in, fixing to, to watch some Saturday morning cartoons. Actually, wait a minute. <laughs> doing a little research here on the side and my, my memory is failing me. This wasn't something that happened during Saturday morning cartoons because it was a Monday. I don't know what I was watching. Maybe I was trying to watch Sesame Street and all that nonsense in the morning. But um, it, it, it applies anyway. One day around the same time that like the cartoons are coalescing and I'm understanding that the weekends are a special time and, and, and an elevated place to, to do this activity that's out of the normal weekday humdrum, um, I'm sitting there trying to watch some stuff. And again, this was on a Monday, not a Saturday. And um, all of a sudden what I'm watching just cuts away and there's all these kind of uh, guys in 70s suits just talking on and on and on and showing footage of like a car and some guy being like shoved into a car and what it, okay come on let's get back to the programming I was trying to watch and I remember my dad walked in the room he's like yeah your programming isn't going to be coming on anytime soon and that was the day that Ronald Reagan got shot so the, thus preempting everything else um, interesting on television for a bunch of uh old people talking on and on and on and on and on about something I didn't understand. And that's funny because for years I thought that was a Saturday morning cartoon incident, but that was a Monday God only knows what I was watching incident. Um, but you get the gist. Um, I tried to extend my viewing into Sundays as well when I was feeling really cocky. Um, and the way I would do that is Sundays was not cartoons. Sundays, um, there was a channel in our area that would show a block of kind of old-timey kids programming, like it would show Our Gang, and then um, it would show a bunch of old, like, black-and-white Popeye cartoons, um, and it was hosted by this dude who was, like, hanging out on a boat and kind of wearing a Popeye hat, um, but... My pitch for that is these were all old shows that my dad kind of um, related to. And so I'd tell him, you know, I got to get up. I got to watch this stuff. Cause th this is research. This is my homework. This isn't, you know, this isn't cartoons. This is, this is research. And like six out of ten times he'd go for it. And I'd, I'd add tack on that bonus Sunday watching. But back to Saturday mornings. I don't really want to do a comprehensive laundry list of every show I ever watched or what shows were on which network, which year. There's plenty of sources for that kind of stuff. It's not what we do here on this show. This is more about just kind of impressions and memories and weird trips and tangents just kind of based on these, uh, these subjects. Um, so I'll just – I'll closing on out here, I'll just run through some memories and some uh, impressions from, from the cartoons back then. Um, let's talk about some of the cartoons I was really into. Um, I remember being really into the Dragon's Lair cartoon, and I don't even think that that ran very long. Um, but the reason that that one stands out for me, and I don't even remember a single episode of the show, I just remember um, that year was a year when I was really conscious of the fact that the new cartoon, Saturday morning cartoon season was starting, and there was a preview show the night before on whichever network the Dragon's Lair cartoon was on. When these preview shows, they'd have like they have people like Weird Al or someone else would be like taking you on a tour of all these great cartoons that are going to be on tomorrow morning, just making it impossible to sleep that night. I just remember this just crushing feeling of like anticipation. Just like, come on, man, let's just start showing these now. Um, 
And um, so I, I just remember being really taken with the, the Dragon's Lair preview for the year that that cartoon came out. And I was very fascinated with the Dragon's Lair game as well, which is why I was so into the cartoon. Same thing with the game. I never, like, I was so bad at that game. Like, I honestly thought it was just a game that you played by, like, button mashing. So I'd be, like, you know, hitting the sword button and trying to move Dirk around, just, just dying endlessly. But I was so captivated by the, just the animation, that Don Bluth animation, and um, just the, the grisly death scenes and the, the, the voices, and just something about that game which just seemed so epic, and it, like, took me into a, to an altered state of consciousness. Um, it, it, it was much more than the sum of its parts, too, because I've gone back and watched that the whole playthrough of that game, and it's like, eh, well, eh. But something about the time and the place and the presentation of Dragon's Lair, so the Dragon's Lair cartoon... Really, I just remember being so excited for that. And again, don't really remember much of the cartoon itself. It probably sucked, but <laughs> like, and that's the thing. Most of these Saturday morning cartoons weren't great, if, if we're being honest about it. Like the shows I see my kids watching now, the writing's so much better, the animation's usually a lot better, but it wasn't about that back then. Um, it was, you know, scarcity of product. You couldn't watch these things whenever you wanted to on demand. It was just that one window of time on those Saturdays. Once an episode aired, you, you weren't going to see it again unless it just happened to air again in syndication or something like that. Um, it just elevated everything, and it caused these really kind of crude, simple cartoons in, in a lot of cases that were just there to get you to watch commercials for Hubba Bubba chewing gum. Um, it turned them into a conduit to, to, to take you somewhere else, to be something else. And um, so we'll... Talk about another one I was really into. I loved, actually, uh, let's be honest, I had a love-hate relationship with um, the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon because the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon was coinciding with my interest in the actual game Dungeons & Dragons. And when I say my interest, I was not actually playing the game. I bought, um, I saved up money, and I bought the um, uh, red box set, like the beginner's Dungeons & Dragons box set. And I would pour over that thing for hours, but never actually play the game, just just pouring over the rule books. And so when the cartoon came out, I was really excited for a painstakingly realistic depiction of Dungeons and Dragons. And obviously, wasn't quite what that was. I, I was a little off put by the fact that the characters were like kids from our time, if you remember that. And then like some of the character classes, like what the hell's an acrobat? Um, but uh, I grew to um, accept the show and there were certain aspects of it I liked. I liked that there was the dungeon master that would appear. I really liked the heel. What was that guy's name? Was it Venger or was that his horse? I guess there was that heel guy. Um, I, whatever. Anyway, liked him um, and then I would really like it when they would uh, bring in, there was a line of Dungeons and Dragons action figures back in the day and um, sometimes those characters would appear um, on the show, and I was like that because I thought it drew it in more to real Dungeons and Dragons. And so there was one episode in particular that I just loved of Dungeons and Dragons, where they end up in a prison, and it's, it's kind of like a, a depressing episode, bleak, and um, the um, paladin character, um, action figure character, dude's name was Strongheart, I believe. He was in the prison there and kind of joined forces with the kids, and maybe some of the other characters were in the mix. Like, who? What were some of those other Dungeons and Dragons? Uh, action figure. Wasn't there like, there was an elf named Melf? <laughs> and uh, was there like an evil wizard named Kelek or something? I don't know. I, I gotta look that line up. That was a random action figure line. And then they, and then I never understood if those were like canon characters from like Dungeons and Dragons and if so, like which part? And I think they did show up in some rule book somewhere. I don't know. In, in any case, this episode about this prison, 
it just totally captured my imagination because they were stuck in this prison. They didn't have their gear, so they had to escape without weapons. And this led me to, um, after that, I'd spent months um, playing um, prison stories with my action figures. And I'd basically go up to my parents' uh, bookshelf and I would pull certain books farther out than others on the shelf, making cells. And then um, the various characters, um, uh, Secret Wars characters and those, whatever the DC uh, characters from that, that same time period were. And um, those were the main ones I think I, I used for the, uh, these stories. But, like, I would, I would have them escape the prison. But uh, So just another example of how just this, you know, iffy cartoon intended to sell some breakfast cereal sent me on this months long imagination spiral. So take that watch groups, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, not, I guess there's not that much productive to come out of um, playing prison games with your action figures, but yeah, you know, worked out, worked work to the mind. I wasn't just sitting there staring into space drooling or anything. Um, so the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon um, absolutely despised the Smurfs, which is funny because I liked Smurfs. Um, my grandma used to buy me Smurfs because they sold like the figurines at Hallmark, um, and so she used to buy me the Smurf figurines, and, and I really liked those. I liked the way they smelled, like the way they felt in my hand. Um, but the cartoon, man, I it, I felt like it was like four hours long, and it was just grating and annoying. I, I, just, I remember there was this one um, episode that really got on my nerves for some reason. There was like a magic uh, needle and thread. And uh, one of the Smurfs or some of the Smurfs wanted to use it because then they didn't have to do work themselves. They could just have the, the magic needle and thread do it for, for them. But the problem with the magic needle and thread is it was like totally bipolar. So when it was being good, it was like a golden um, uh, golden needle and it would float in the air and sing, so, so, so. And then when people weren't looking, it would turn evil and it would be like this red needle and it would be like, needle, needle, needle. I don't know, man. It's just like, who cares? Uh, so the Smurfs were kind of a bummer for me, just particularly how much uh, time they took up. Um, I'm sure there was stuff on other channels, and I probably did switch, but I just remember never a fan of the Smurfs. Even less of a fan of, what were they, the Snorks? Like, wannabe fish Smurf? Because those there was not even a figurine connection. That was just horrible. Um, uh, what else was there? Um, oh, okay, so the mother of all Saturday morning cartoons for me, and I... I mean, yeah, I just think in, in, in terms of overall impact on my life, because it's not the first thing that I associate with Saturday mornings, but really, if I think back, um, yeah, it was a big one for me, was um, the, uh, was the um, Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling cartoon. And anyone who listens to the show knows that I'm a wrestling fan, and I was drawn in first as a kid to the WWF during the rock and wrestling era. And this cartoon is really what solidified that for me. Um, wrestling, I loved the idea of wrestling from afar, but I didn't really get to see that much of it. Um, I mean, it wasn't like it is now where there was a weekly um, or multiple weekly uh, cable programs. You know, it was something that would come on once in a, in a blue moon. And, you know, I didn't know how to follow it or when it was going to come on, so I would, it would have to be by chance that I saw it. So it was more like I, I admired it through, like, merchandise I'd see, T-shirts I'd see, picture books I'd see. Um, but the Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling cartoon is the first medium that really just put it out here. Here's the cast of characters in the WWF. Here are the ones that are good guys. Here are the ones that are bad guys. You know, here's why they're having their struggles with each other. And the funny thing is, I've seen the cartoon in the last couple of years. It is horrible. It's a horrible cartoon. But 
as a kid, I was able to synthesize this presentation of these characters and then what I knew of the characters from actually seeing them wrestle. And it just turned it into this really captivating, um, all-encompassing struggle of good and evil. But then also they were just, they, they were kind of like just in a lot of mundane situations, like Roddy Piper and Iron Sheik could be driving around in a car together. And there's something about that that juxtaposition of these guys that on one hand I saw as these like comic book heroes and villains, almost like godlike characters being presented on a cartoon as, as mortals. It, it just it, it just added even more depth to the to the pantheon. And um, I, I remember in particular, God, that theme for that um, show. That's one um, aspect that I will stand by um, quality wise for that show to this day because that theme was just so gripping. Like, wasn't it? It was like you'd have. Um, uh, kind of started off with an empty city street and then like um, Hulk was walking down the street and then suddenly just these epic piano strains just dun Hulk! Hulk! And like everyone's pouring out on the street following Hulk down the street. Hulk! And it was just like mind blowing. Um, I'm like, I wasn't even a Hogan fan. Like, not back then, not now. I liked him for a while during his NWO run, but still, he got me so pumped up. I wanted to be on that street. I, where was that city? I wanted to be pounding the pavement. Oh, oh. And then like the synthesizers kick in, maybe a little guitar, some guitar licks. Oh, just phenomenal stuff. Um, loved that cartoon. Um, cartoon changed my life. I would not be. I wouldn't be Mr. Sensational Gino Vega if it weren't for Hulk Hogan's Rock Wrestling, quite simply. Which leads me to another cartoon that was uh, a big one for me back then. Um, it was the Mr. T cartoon. Now, Mr. T was another one of these weird figures from my childhood where um, he was a larger-than-life figure for me, but due to my parents' weirdness about what I watched, I didn't actually... <laughs> see a lot of Mr. T. Mr. T was a, it was an idea to me. Mr. T was an action figure I had. Mr. T was my knowledge that there was a show called The A-Team. My knowledge of the other A-Team action figures. I think I also had a Murdoch action figure. And just the vehicles that were out there, I, I realized that, that somewhere there was an actual show featuring all this stuff. Um, which is funny, yeah, because I could, I could have Mr. T with his M16 toy, but I, <laughs> I couldn't watch The A-Team. Um, but I was able to sneak the Mr. T cartoon under the radar. So based on how resistant my parents had been to the A-Team, I thought that the Mr. T cartoon was going to be this lurid, just uh, uh, carnival of violence and just people getting mowed down with M-16s and feather earrings and, you know, mohawks and just all kinds of craziness. In reality, what it was was Mr. T was a gymnastics coach, right? But I didn't care. I mean, I, I, I still just watched it, just waiting for the violence to unfold. And it never really did, but, it, I, hey, I was watching Mr. T. And that, another one, that theme, Mr. T, dun, Mr. T. I mean, that's. I haven't seen the show in 30 years, 35 years, but I can bring that one up for you at the drop of a dime. Um, that show, I felt like I finally got that connection to Mr. T that I was craving. Um, Funny thing, I, I got an autographed picture from Mr. T once. I sent him a letter, and I, I received a, a black and white um, photograph of him flexing, and it said, God bless you, Mr. T. Um, I don't know what ever happened to that. 
But I used to dress up as Mr. T. I had a blue vest I'd wear. Um, I had some fake earrings I made where I just like looped a string around my ear and then the earrings dangled down. Um, I would burn a cork and then use the um, soot end of the cork to draw a beard on my face. And um, I think I had maybe some boots I wore too. And then I'd drive my big wheels out in the backyard and I'd just be Mr. T. Just, uh, just taking fools out with my M16, which is funny because, you know, on the A-Team, it's like they don't even do that, really. But, yeah, I just thought Mr. T was a stone-cold killer. And <laughs> so um, stone-cold killer who um, coaches gymnastics on the weekends. Um, so while we're talking about this, um, I think it may as well bring it back to, to the whole the, – the thing that brought Saturday morning cartoons to the dance, which were the commercials, which in a lot of ways were – as memorable as um, the cartoons themselves. And sure, they were there to lead children like myself down the primrose path to buying all kinds of junk we didn't need. But much like the cartoons, I, it, they also had the unintended effect of stimulating my imagination, um, cr- providing images that, that went on to influence the way I would see things for the rest of my adult life. Um, and some of those commercials that I really vividly remember... Um, Remember there was an advertising campaign going on for a while, and God, my parents were such killjoys. Another thing I wasn't able to have was um, like sugar cereal, sugary cereal. So um, Captain Crunch, I don't even think I've ever had it. Um, but there was a time period where they were doing this um, uh, campaign for Captain Crunch where the captain was missing. Captain Crunch has disappeared. <gasps> the captain's gone. If you find him, you could win part of a million-dollar reward in the Where's the Captain sweepstakes. Specially marked Captain Crunch cereal boxes have entry blanks with clues and detective kits to help find him. Millions will guess, answer right, and you have a chance to be one of 10,000 winners of a $100 share of the million dollars. To enter free, write for one of the three clues to Where's the Captain, Box 3225, Syosset, New York, 11775. Now, where is the captain? He'd be kidnapped by some dude with, like, you could only see his eyes, you couldn't see his face or something like that. And, um, yeah, it was this whole, um, complicated campaign where like the, the captain was no longer seen on the boxes or just like a, his outline and a question mark. He'd gone missing. You had to search for clues. Uh, I think the clues were, uh, came in the boxes of the cereal or you could, um, send away for them, uh, by mail. Cause I think it was some law, like they couldn't, the, these kind of contests couldn't be restricted to customers. They had to open them to the public. So um, you could send away from the materials. I bugged my parents about letting me do that, and they kind of blew me off. I remember um, the address that you sent away to um, was a uh, – it's some of Santa Rosa's finest just driving by the house. But uh, <laughs> the um, address you sent away to was um, a P.O. box in Scarsdale, New York. And I remember um, my dad told me that Scarsdale was um, – like Esperanto or some other language uh, word for garbage. And that all, when they see that at the post office, they just throw it in the trash. There really is no contest. So just dashing my hopes because I think he didn't want to bother with helping me fill out a postcard or whatever. But yeah, so there were, there were clues or maps. And because I didn't have access to it myself, I went ahead and uh, made my own um, – the captain is missing um, mystery. I made my own maps. I, I think I even made like a card game that went along with it. God only knows. I, I wish I could remember the details because very uh, detailed, um, very intricate. Don't know whatever became of all those materials, but um, I spent a good deal of time um, creating my own mock. Um, the captain is missing mystery. And I, I think like he was kidnapped by like, a, like I was saying, it was a guy. I remember these eyes, eyes without a face, kind of like, you know, he was like a robot or something. I don't know. 
But um, tried looking it up, and I couldn't find a clear, easy um, text summary of what the contest was. I just found a bunch of YouTube clips, so you'll probably be hearing some of that in the background uh, in post from post-production on this episode. But anyway, other commercials I remember, um, remember the, the, the great Hubba Bubba commercials where uh, it was the Wild West and uh, there were two gunslingers and there was always that guy with kind of the puffy white hair and like the bowler hat. It's like, oh, they're a-coming. They're coming. He's a-coming. There's going to be a gunfight. <laughs> There's a brand new bubblegum in town named Hubba Bubba. It's soft, juicy, and delicious. Best of all, Hubba Bubba lets you blow great big. And, uh, you know, uh, the guys <laughs> face, face off with each face. other and each uh, tries to blow a bubble and the hubba bubble one doesn't pop. The other guy gets gum all over his face. There was a comic book version of that ad, too. I remember that um, oh, that's, uh, uh, listener Eric Purcell just uh, uh, pinged me on Facebook. I think we were talking about how a statue in his hometown looks like um, the uh, player character from the arcade punch-out game. <laughs> but, uh, shout out to Eric. Um but uh, it was oh so hubba bubba yeah th- those commercials always fascinated me because I didn't understand what the issue was like so you, the gum pops and it goes on your face they're, I'm missing something here they're they're presenting this that this is like this incredibly kind of fatal thing um, I think in the comic book version of the ad it reduced the guy with the popping gum to having to wear like a bag over his head but uh, found those commercials fascinating I, there was such a uh, memorable cast of characters and great faces in those commercials I always thought they were from some larger um, show or something like oh this is just an excerpt from there's some hubba bubba TV show that I don't know about or some hubba bubba movie but nah it was just a commercial for gum I don't really like gum uh, it's always, I don't know, like the wife and kids sometimes go for gum at the candy store, but for me, it's just like gum. You go so little bang for your buck. I used to love um, fruit strike gum. Um, basically, this woman who, for let's say she was my godmother, the best way to describe it. Uh, when I lived in San Francisco as a kid, my parents' best friend, go over to her house and she'd always have a, uh, a pack of. Uh, uh, fruit stripe gum in a kitchen drawer. And I just remember for like the first five seconds of chewing that gum, it was the best tasting thing ever. And then just crashed, dude, just no flavor. That's my problem with gum. It's like you chew it for like five seconds and it's over. And then you're stuck. You don't even, you can't swallow it or anything. You're stuck with the freaking thing. But anyway, um, another commercial that, um, I might've talked about this before, but I can't remember, um, the commercial that just stands out in my mind so much. I don't know why this made such a big impact to me, but um, like I was saying, Saturday morning cartoons kind of made me realize the distinction between weekend and weekday. I also started to realize that on weekends, after I was done watching the cartoons, we'd usually do something fun, like go to the nearby town of San Luis Obispo, because most of them, my Saturday morning cartoon uh, watching went down when we were living in a uh, town, Atascadero, down kind of... Um, Near San Luis Obispo, if you know where that is, where the college Cal Poly is in California. But anyway, we do fun things. I go to San Luis Obispo where there was a big toy store, Uncle Tom's Toys. And so, like, the the cartoons were kind of the pre-festivities, and then that kind of trip out shopping for the day was, like, the the main event, I guess. And uh, there's this one commercial that I I think it had a pretty long run, and I always associated it with uh, going to Uncle Tom's Toys. And it was this Hershey's uh, chocolate bar commercial. And I think it was, like, all these cool 80s kids were, like, breakdancing in the, um, their high school halls. And I remember I had the song, um, Hershey, Hershey, Hershey's, it's the fun one. Hershey, Hershey, Hershey's, pure milk chocolate fun. Pure milk chocolate, delicious and smooth. 
Well, something, 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 I'll prove it to you. When you take a bite, take a bite, you'll feel all right. Hershey, 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 it's the fun one. Hershey, 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 pure milk chocolate fun. So to me, I yeah, that's it. Pack your bags, we're going to go look at some toys. <laughs> uh, I also heavily associate that commercial and that song with um, that um, red D&D box set I talked about buying because it was around that same era where that commercial was in full throat. Um, some other stuff. You remember those Levi's commercials where it was like a bunch of different images going by and like aliens coming down and saying like Levi's is. Um, I think it was, yeah, it was like an animated thing where it just shuffled through image after image after image and all these various... Uh, Levi-related things. I don't know. I'm not really describing that well. <laughs> Forget about that one. Um, Miller's Outpost commercials. There were those two guys, just two cowboys just trying to sell some jeans, man. Or I guess they weren't cowboys. They were like more like uh, Gold Rush dudes. You are very drowsy. You can barely stay awake. Your eyelids hey, are... Do you want to go with us tonight? Oh, no. Well, we just went to Miller's Outpost and got these great-looking Levi's moving-on jeans just for the occasion. And hey, the ladies really go for the great styling. And not to mention the slim-trim fit of Levi's moving-on jeans. Well, we got to go, Homer. See you later. Take care. Bye. So long. You will act like a chicken. You will... Oh, dang it, horse. You're just too smart. I always found that very confusing um, because I thought... I didn't understand there were different kinds of jeans. I thought Levi's were jeans. So it's like Levi's is having commercials, but then there's also this Miller's Outpost thing. And do they sell Levi's? Or they, they say they have these other pants, but they're not jeans. They're Levi's or they aren't Levi's. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, folks, I'm kind of running out of steam here, and I think it, it's probably a good enough time to call this particular episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. I feel like it's been a while since the, those summer episodes I did. Sorry it kind of took me a while to get back in the swing here. But like I always say, I'm, I'm, my schedule is a work in progress, and I, I think I'm at a point now where the, the school year started, I got my work under control, my paid work, and so I think I'm going to be able to come back to you sooner than later with more um, from myself, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. Really like to keep on track with the at least once a month here. May, maybe twice a month would be good to shoot for. I don't think you want to hear more from me than that, and it works good for me just uh, keeping it kind of kind of on the part-time basis here um i think ic robots has the basis covered with kind of the regular weekly content on our radio network but i'm glad to be back with you um i'm glad to be here on the ic robots radio network as always you can look up ic robots i see robots as and i look at them on facebook and join the official isr facebook page um you can go to icrobots.com to check out what's going on um Subscribe to our podcast feed. You got my show. You got Icy Robots Weekly Toys R Us Report podcast. You've got his uh, occasional episodes of This Boring Life where he uh, tackles his origin story topic by topic. He had a really good episode of that recently about hanging with a guy named Andy. Great episode for anyone who grew up in the 80s or even if you didn't. Phenomenal stuff. Um, we got uh, Geek Fest rants coming at you on a fairly regular basis too. Um, what else we got? Um, oh, um, uh, Icy Robots has recently been teaming up with the great um, uh, Kevin Zerby, a.k.a. Zerb. Zerb, short for Zerby, as I learned on the last episode of this podcast that I'm talking about. But they, yeah, they've hooked up to do the Pretentious Podcast, where it's just the two of them kind of freestyling for about an hour or so. It's really, really great stuff. Um, and I think that's like a regular thing now. So um, at least it feels like it has been. I don't know. I should probably be more on top of what's going on. Um, 
with uh, our network. But uh, yeah, you can also head on over to supportthereport.com where for as little as $1 a month, you can help support our endeavors here at IC Robots Radio Network. And you can also go over to Redbubble and search for IC Robots. He's got a store over there. There's a Mr. Sensational Gino Vega t-shirt. There's IC Robots t-shirts. There's stickers. There's, I think, mugs. All kinds of great merch. Pick something up. Help us out here. We're just trying to trying to keep the lights on to keep providing you with the riveting content that we do here at IC Robots Radio Network. I also want to give a special uh, thank you to um, IC Robots and to Zerb for helping put together um, the segment you heard, the little intro thing at the uh, uh, beginning of this uh, episode. It's our new intro with the, it sounds like a, a Sega Master Systems booting up and you hear the, the Sega, but it's Vega and that, was, that uh, came by way of the very talented Zerb, short for Zerby. Um, so thanks to those guys for um, putting that together. Thanks to everyone out there who's listening. Um, oh, uh, big ups to, I believe it's South Korea. <laughs> Icy Robots uh, let me know that I've been getting a lot of downloads from there recently. At least I'm assuming it's South. <laughs> It'd be kind of interesting otherwise, but uh, big ups, South Korea. Hey, everyone, thanks for being here. Thanks for letting me be sensational. Thanks for being sensational with me. Until next time, this has been Mr. Sensational, Gino Vega, with the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. has been a Joseph S. Mama production on the IC Robots Radio Network. Not heard? Oh,